the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 20 The Answer or Salem Media Group. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with a special edition of The Advocate. And uh, this is a special edition because we're talking about COVID-19. And uh, we're going to talk during the first two uh, segments uh, with the USO. Uh, The military is still out there, and they still need assistance. Uh, With us tonight, we have uh, Tanya Karabanov. Tanya, how are you? Good, Nick. How are you? Oh, very good. You know, uh, as I mentioned, is that we have uh, the military is still active and still coming in and out of Cleveland, and the USO is still there for them. Can you tell us a little bit about what what is the USO for those of us who don't remember specifically what it does? Okay. Um, the USO is the United Service Organization, and we've been around for 79 years. Next uh, February, it'll be 80 years. And our mission is to serve those that are currently serving in the military and their uh, dependents, their families. Um, and we do that through a number of ways. I mean, if you travel through airports, you've probably seen our USO lounges. Um, we do a lot of programming for military families. Um, and we're just here to support them. I know a lot of people are familiar with Bob Hope and everything he's done and Toby Keith and the USO shows. Um, but there's so much more that we do where we go out to the individual units to serve them directly. Well, I know with uh, Bob Hope, that was a big thing over the many years. Uh, we have a Bob Hope uh, location right here in Cleveland at the uh, Hopkins Airport. Uh, when we have a USO uh, location at an airport, what, what all does that provide for military members? Um, it's a lounge that takes them away from uh, all the traffic in the airport and gives them a place to, you know, maybe catch a nap, catch a snack, um, take it easy, just get away from the the public. Um, We also serve those that are, you know, going to basic training for the first time. So you may have a kid who's never navigated an airport, never been on an airplane, um, and he's leaving for basic training. So um, we work with them to make sure they get on their flight, make sure they get up there before the plane's boarding. Um, And it's just a very, a lot of hospitality. And we have the greatest volunteers. Um, and they just take really, really good care of our military as they're traveling around. Now, we still do military physicals here in the Cleveland area. Is that still happening? The, for the, um, those going into the military, basic training? Yes. You do those at the what Correct. they call the MEC. Um, it's the military entrance processing station. And that's about five minutes from the airport off of Grayton Road. Now, how is all of this operation being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, um, so all of the brick and mortar, our physical locations, including the uh, location in the airport and the location in the map, have been shut down. 
Um, currently, they are not sending kids to basic training. And if you've been to Hopkins Airport in the last uh, week or so, it's a pretty much a ghost town. So um, the lounge is currently closed, and that was um, a judgment that came for the safety of all the volunteers and those traveling. And um, it was a hard decision because it hurts us not to be there. Um, we want to be there to help as much, but there isn't as much travel as many of you may be aware. Um, the military has been given orders to stay in place unless it's absolutely necessary for them to um, to move for, from their duty station. So, for example, if you're um, at Fort Campbell, you have to stay at Fort Campbell. Um, you couldn't come, you know, home to visit or anything like that. Even if you had leave planned, that's all been canceled. Oh, that's affecting all of us. And uh, I know as we're talking tonight, we don't have any date as to when this is going to go back to normal. Um, no, we don't, unfortunately. It just depends on what comes from the governor, what comes from the president. Um, hopefully we're going to be there sooner rather, sooner rather than later. Well, uh, I know you work a lot with volunteers. Uh, what what can volunteer in the COVID-19 situation? Right now we've been um, doing a lot of what we call virtual programming for military families on our social media and our um, webpage. So we have volunteers who maybe make a video reading a children's story or do a cooking demonstration or um, a fitness video or if they do crafts, maybe a craft video. And we're putting those out there to military families and hope. That gives them a little bit of a distraction. It gives them something to do. Um, we're trying to get as many ideas as we can to them. Because like everybody else, you know, they're stuck at home with kids. and um, So we're trying to take and give them some ideas and some, some friendly faces. So our volunteers right now are, you know, doing a lot of um, virtual programming. And that can be seen on our, um, anyone can see it on our webpage or our social media. What is your webpage? It's um, northernohio.uso.org. Now, uh, how many volunteers and how many full-time staff do you have, and is everyone safely distancing during this time? Yes. Um, we have three full-time staff members, and we're all currently working from home. Um, we do do some uh, outreach to the military that's still serving, such as the National Guard and the Coast Guard and um, some of the reserve units. So we do some of that, but we are definitely distancing um, from each other. And our volunteers are staying home, are staying home, and uh, we keep in contact with them via the phone. We do um, Zoom meetings where we can all get on and talk. Um, so... It's tough because we all want to be serving our military and, and we want to be busy with that. Um, and we've had to find different and unique ways to do that right now. Do you work with any particular armed service or how do you work with all of them? Um, we work with all of them. Our mission is to serve anyone um, who's currently serving. Right now our focus with the COVID-19 um, in Northern Ohio is prim primarily with the National Guard. Um, as many people know that there's been several hundred National Guard activated to help at the food bank um, to help with building out um, 
these possible additional hospital spaces. So what we've been doing is taking them lunch um, and saying, hey, we appreciate what you're doing. We're still here. We care. Um, you know, here's some lunch. Um, and we're always looking if there's anybody who knows a restaurant or something that would like to donate, please get in touch with me. Um, we would love that. And the troops appreciate it so much. Uh, how many troops are around here? Do you have an idea of how many numbers you're serving? Um, we serve about 60,000. Um, most of them are in the National Guard or the Coast Guard. Those are our two biggest um, customers in this area. I mean, we do have uh, the Marine Corps, the Navy, uh, you know, the Army, but um, primarily our, our biggest customers are the National Guard and the Coast Guard. Well, that, that sounds like a sounds like a, a lot. Uh, we're going to be taking a break in, in a short time here, and when we come back, we want to talk about how can people get involved with the USO, either as volunteers, safe volunteers, or how they can be involved as uh, individuals donating something, either cash or donating some some food or whatever you take. So we're talking to uh, to Tanya from the USO Northern. Uh, Tanya, real quick, how long have you been with the uh, USO? I mean, it'll be. I'll have been working for them seven years in July. But before that, I volunteered with them for 15 years, so a total of about 22 years. Oh, my. Well, that's been a long time. It's my passion. So uh, that uh, you know keeps you going. You have another few more years to go here. Absolutely. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Okay, welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you, The Advocate. Uh, yes, uh, we're all thinking... Uh, We've been talking about that for the last several weeks here on The Advocate. Tonight we're talking about our soldiers, our military people who come in and out of Cleveland, people who live here in Cleveland. And uh, they're supported by the group known as the USO. You may remember enough to remember that. Uh, but otherwise, uh, they provide hospitality, some civilized company. And uh, with us tonight from the USO here in northern Ohio, we have Tanya Karabanovs. Uh, COVID-19, but uh, again, as we were talking about earlier, uh, the, the whole concept of being preoccupied with the virus is something that doesn't stop for for the military. And uh, with that in mind, what, what are things some people can do to help out the USO if they want to help um, out our military? Okay. Um, you can make financial donations at our website, which is northernohio.uso.org. Um, you can also make those on our Facebook page, which is, which is um, USO Northern Ohio. You can also mail them um, to USO Northern Ohio at 160 Clifton Avenue Northeast, Unit 3 in Warren, Ohio, 44484. And those um, donations we're receiving now are strictly going to our COVID-19 program, which is supporting the National Guard um, and the Coast Guard primarily, primarily right now. 
Um, as I said, we're taking meals to them, um, snacks, water, Gatorade. Um, they're working so hard. I was out at a couple of the food banks last week, and I was amazed at how hard these kids are working and serving their community. So it's nice for us to be able to bring something to them. Also, if you know someone who has a restaurant, if you have a restaurant and you wanted to donate food, um, you can always contact me. Our phone number is 216-265-3680. And um, we'll get, you know, we'll get in touch with you right away to set that up. Um, also, if anyone is interested in virtually volunteering and you wanted to to make a video of a craft demonstration or a cooking video or maybe uh, reading a storybook to some kids, um, military kids, um, you can always do that and send the video to us. Um, so those are some things. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's good idea because with all the military, you know, when military people are gone, they usually leave family behind. And uh, so if they do this, people can do YouTubes on their own, and they yep. can be very simple. Right. And uh, are there are there people there at the USO who can help uh, talk them through how to do that? Yeah. Um, if you call our number or go to our website and email me, um, you know, any of our staff would be happy to help um, talk you through it. I'd be happy to help walk you through it um, and, and t- tell you what you need to do to get us, you know, get that to us. Absolutely. Oh, that, that is, that, that's excellent. Now, I, I know this is April, and uh, we we're going to be uh, celebrating a fundraiser, uh, dinner dance uh, with you, mm-hmm. so that has been canceled like everything else. Right. But uh, I understand yeah. everyone's going to be planning for next year. What What is special about yeah, next year in the USO? Um, we're planning our dinner dance for February um, of next year because that is the month that we turn 80. Um, that'll be 80 years of the USO serving the military. Um, the, the Cleveland USO is actually one of the first USOs in the country. So not only is it the national USO's um, 80th anniversary, it's our 80th anniversary. So we will be celebrating that and focusing in on that. Um, we do a canteen-style dance, and we hand out the Bob Hope Hometown Hero Award. Um so we're really excited to be able to plan that for February now. We were hoping to get it, you know, one in this year, but unfortunately, um, plans change. And I also just want to mention, so um, April is the month that you celebrate a military child. It's Military Child Month. So we're going to be doing some stuff on our, our Facebook page and website to celebrate military kids. And the one thing that um, people can do to show support for military kids is on April 15th, if you wear purple, I know we'll all be at home, but if you put purple on, that's the color of the military child to show them support. So I would also ask if you wanted to do something, you know, that day or beforehand, like make a um, sign that says thank you to military kids or something along those lines and take a photo. If you get those photos to us, we're going to put a video together um, celebrating military kids with all those thank you photos. Oh, that sounds very nice. Uh, about how many families do you support? Because I know we talk about the military members, but mm-hmm. how many dependents are there around here? Um, there's a lot. There's probably about between sixty and 70,000. Um, That's a tremendous number. talk about number. spouses 
and kids. Yeah, and it's a unique situation for military spouses and kids because they don't have a typical military installation here like a Fort Bragg or uh, Camp Lejeune or something like that. So we find unique and creative ways to give them the opportunity to interact with each other. And um, Mm -hmm. right now with the COVID-19, that's become more of a challenge. So we're hoping these little virtual and interactive videos on our social media can kind of pull them together. Um, Monday, we're Mm -hmm. doing a movie night. So um, we're going to set up a a Netflix watch party and all watch a movie together. So um, it's always a challenge. We don't have a big installation, but even more of a challenge right now because we can't all be together. For the family members that are out there now, and, and they, they've they heard of the USO, but they really haven't been interacting with anyone from the USO, uh, how how does someone who is a military family member or they, they know a military family member and they could pass on some information to them tonight, how would they be able to reach out to the USO and establish a connection and start taking advantage of some of these programs? Um, if they go to our website um, under programs, there's a program called Tickets for the Truth, and it's actually a registration um, link that will register the family, the military person, um, and they will be put on our, our in our database on our military blacklist. So when we have things going on, um, it gets sent out to them. They can also um, check out our Facebook page. We post a lot of stuff on there. Um, of what we're doing. They also can always go to their FRGs, their family readiness people, um, their commands, and they all have the information on how to reach us. And that uh, website, is that's northernohiouso.org? It's um, northernohio.uso.org. Oh, well, that's good. So hopefully people will, you know, catch up and catch up with you guys on that. Uh, is there anything you guys have coming up uh, in the next, third, next, next 30 days? Um, for the next 30 days, we're looking at a lot of virtual programming. Um, we're looking at a lot of uh, meals to the uh, National Guard. Um, that's kind of a fluid program because it just depends on what the governor assigns them to do as to where we'll be able to um, serve them. So right now it's a lot of um, stuff at the armories and the food banks. And so it'll just depend on, on what the troop movement is in the next 30 days. Well, then that's going to keep your plate full with uh, with food, good food for the troops. I, I well, prefer be... being busy, yeah. Well, you sure will. And uh, yeah. well, make sure you stay safe out there and everyone with the USO stays safe. Yeah, we're taking want... all the proper precautions and... Um, we just we're, we've got to be there for them because they're always there for us. They sure are, and uh, that's that's a good thing. So you know, from the standpoint of uh, keeping everyone safe as we come out of this COVID nineteen thing, uh, we want everyone to be available to uh, come out to the fundraiser in February, and it's it's yeah. a great time. A lot of big band music and swing dancers, yeah. and uh, it's fun to watch if nothing else. Well, Tanya, thank you so very much uh, in coming on tonight and talking to us about the OSO here in Cleveland. Thanks, Nick, for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, in this segment, we're going to be talking about, of course, the coronavirus and also talking about the uh, problems with ethics and some ethics issues that may be uh, with us sooner than later. And here to talk to us about it is an expert in the field, is Dr. Stephen Mintz. Dr. Mintz, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, uh, what's been monopolizing all of our thoughts and discussions over the last weeks now has been the coronavirus. And uh, we're going to talk tonight about that virus and, among other things, talk about uh, the spread as well as the ethical issues that are involved in it. Uh, but before we do that, if you could tell us where you're calling from and uh, a little bit about yourself and your, your expertise. Sure. Um, I'm at San Luis Obispo, California, about mid-state, and I am a professor emeritus from Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and have taught ethics to college students for, oh, I'd say about 30 years. So I always get very interested in these business ethical situations, public interest issues as well, because it's it's really right up my expertise and Hopefully, uh, through my writings and interviews, I can shed, shed a different light on the issues that surround the coronavirus. And uh, tell us about your doctorate. The, the, a doctorate I, I got from George Washington mm -hmm. University in D.C. Uh, the doctorate was in business administration with uh, ethics as a specialty area. Um, and I've learned a lot about ethics uh, along the way because my original career was public accounting, and uh, the CPA profession has a very strong code of ethics, and I was asked by many groups to speak about it, teach courses on it, and so on. So that kind of was my initial push into the area. How, how does this cross over into medical ethics? Well, uh, medical ethics is just one of many ethical areas I've looked at. It's an application of my knowledge of ethics in general. Uh, public health ethics would probably be what we're looking at here with the coronavirus because these situations arise in the real world where uh, the ethical issues need to be explained in the context of the problem. And uh, this is just something that I've done over time to spread my wings and become an expert uh, in addition to my business ethics area. With uh, comparing the current coronavirus uh, pandemic, how does it compare to uh, the issues of the Spanish uh, flu, SARS, H1N1, and uh, situations where we have <coughs> limited medical services for too many people, too many patients? Right. Well, I think the big difference is how quickly this virus seems to spread. Uh, it doesn't take much for one person to infect another, which obviously drives up the number of people potentially at risk and creates a whole lot of health care issues, as we've been discussing the last uh, few weeks. Now, the other cases uh, with serious medical conditions if somebody got sick from SARS, uh, for example, but the likelihood was much less than with the coronavirus. Well, what, as of uh, at least our conversation today, 
what what is the method of transmission? Is it strictly droplet at this point, or is it an aerosol, or what what do you know about it? Yeah, what I know, it is droplet. It's being too close to somebody who is contagious, whether they know it or not, and they might cough on you, something along those lines, or obviously touch would be a problem, which is why we're doing this social distancing. According to the experts, if you stay six feet or more away, the likelihood of the droplet um, causing any problems for you is much less. Uh, how is that working? Uh, any, any idea whether social distancing uh, alone, singularly, is having much effect on slowing down the transmission? Yeah, I, I believe it is. I think the problem is not everybody is following it. There are some communities where they're going about their regular business, more or less. Certainly, we've seen people uh, going to work, more so uh, college students partying on, be on beaches, thinking, well, this will never affect us, but we've already had some illnesses among the uh, 20 to 35 or so age group. So it's, it's a mixed bag. I suppose some of it depends on the rules and guidelines that governors of states set. But there's clearly a little bit of confusion, I think, at the federal level, at the national level, uh, when and if these precautions will be taken off. And my, my real concern is if we start to talk about uh, another week or two of this and we're lifting the restrictions, people will start to be careless now. They'll take that as a sign, well, you know, if we're going to do it in two weeks, why not now? Uh, then, then that could create a real problem down the road. Have you heard of any cases where people have actually had sort of casual within six feet uh, distance from someone without recalling there being any cough or sneeze or anything, and yet they still came down with the virus. Yeah, yeah, certainly where I live I have. I've read of uh, um, perhaps unwanting touch. You know, people are used to shaking hands, for example, and sometimes you do it automatically, and that'll create a problem for sure. Uh, not washing your hands with soap and water in case there's any residual effects. Well, the, the six feet is nice, but somebody may have touched the desk or a chair, and you sit down at that desk or chair, and six feet's not going to help you much there. So it's not foolproof, but it's, you know, it's certainly a good precaution to stay six feet or more away and not go out. The less you go out, the less you interact with people, the less likely you're going to be affected by it. If you go out uh, and you stay solitary and you s sort of shield yourself off from dealing with other people or getting anywhere near other people, how safe should you feel? Certainly more safe than if you're doing the opposite. It still can't be said that it's 100% foolproof, but since we know it's the uh, droplets, certainly touch, um, unclean surfaces and hands, uh, just being on your own away from people, you have control over what you do. Once you interact with people or groups, you don't. And there's no way of really knowing what they've done and haven't done. 
So while it's not 100% um, effective, it is uh, certainly a good measure and probably the best we have right now. Right, right. My goodness. Well, talking about ethics now, what, what are some of the ethical issues that we have? A lot of it has to do with, I think, personal responsibility. Um, what are our responsibilities to keep that six-foot distance, uh, keep social distancing, not go out, unless it's for food and medicine. And we have a personal responsibility to do that, not only to protect our own health, but others that we interact with. Um, and, and this is very important because as a society, ethics requires we look at the common good. It's not just our own interests, but the best interests of society. And along the same lines, corporations have ethical responsibilities, and a lot of them have stepped up to the plate to make ventilators and masks and uh, protective equipment, even if it's not their main product line. Um, I read this morning of some of these Internet services providing free access to WebEx or Zoom for a period of time if companies want to have remote conferences with employees. And these are all good things, people pitching in. We shouldn't be looking for uh, profits at this point of view, but making a stronger environment and less likely spread of the virus. So those are the main issues. Obviously, when you read something like uh, price gouging, raising the price 100 times, for a scarce product that's the opposite of ethical behavior. Um, I read the other day a supermarket near me where people were taking products out of the carts of other people. So they saw somebody in line had a product they want, they grab it, and they go, oh, and that's really pretty extreme. <laughs> that, that takes care of the uh, personal responsibilities. We're, ta we're, ta we're talking about ethics, uh, ethical issues that are are raised and floating around here, both personal and corporate uh, responsibilities with Dr. Stephen Mar uh, Mintz. Dr. Stephen Mintz from uh, California. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Mintz from California concerning ethical issues that uh, are out there and uh, I think are an everyday matter for all of us as we're uh, going through this uh, problem with the coronavirus and the pandemic and the emergency restrictions that we have. Uh, Dr. Mintz, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You know, in the last segment, we were talking about uh, sort of the personal ethic issues, ethical issues, the corporate ethical issues, uh, and uh, how we all have a responsibility to recognize the common good. Uh, what about the medical side of things, where we're looking at the pandemic uh, peaking in various places around the country at different times, and there being a limitation of per personal protection equipment and ventilators and things like that? What are the issues that you see there? Right, that is the problem. If we don't have health care workers around to take care of us because they contract the virus, 
things are going to get worse very quickly. So, you know, what, what, I think the ethical question is, should we expect healthcare workers to put their own health and welfare at risk to help others in this time of need? Now, the short answer is, of course, yes. Uh, doctors certainly take an oath to do no harm, to help others, and without a doubt, they've been stepping up to the plate um, pretty much the same thing for nurses, but then you get down to staff people within a hospital or a clinic that may not have that professional oath. But this is all dependent on them being protected. And it seems in certain areas of the country, um, there, there's not enough equipment. I think New York is one of those examples. Of course, they've had a large number of cases, more so than virtually anywhere else in the country. But we have to be able to get that equipment to them. And I'm a little bit concerned about that because this virus didn't happen last week. It, it started weeks ago. And I guess it's part of the slow response, but we really should have had these companies working on these types of equipment a long time ago. So we're playing catch up and we have to hope that the outbreak doesn't exceed our capacity to serve folks who have attracted the virus. So it's just a great deal of credit goes to these healthcare people. They're working long hours, they're under duress, they're concerned about their own health and safety and their families and so on. So uh, I give them a lot of credit for what they're doing. Well, they, they should be thanked because every day they go to work, they're putting their lives at risk. And uh, we, we understand that. So hopefully the su supply stream, the corporate supply stream, will be uh, bringing us up to date with the, with the N95 mask and the gowns and the face protectors and rubber gloves or the latex, non-latex gloves. Right. So, so the, the thought is, uh, though the nightmare scenario, of course, is having 20 patients who all need ventilators and you have five ventilators, what do you do? Yeah, well... You start rationing medical care, which is an ethical problem in and of itself. Who do you decide gets served first? Um, it's not an easy decision. It's not black or white. We just can't say things like uh, young people should get served first because the uh, issues for them are probably less. They have a stronger immune system. Um, or do we serve older people first because they have more acute medical conditions? And I think we're going to reach a point where we have to make those decisions. I think to some extent we already are with respect to hospital beds. And that's why places like New York are building new facilities in community centers or other venues where they can put beds for the least affected and have the most seriously affected folks moved into the hospital beds, which obviously you're going to get better care. But we, we have to work on that and work on that now. I'm a little bit disappointed that we weren't able to, to get some of these things from other countries. Obviously, everybody's fighting it. Um, personally, I think China could have helped out more, although I don't know it's, it's their fault. There's obviously been a lot of animosity between the countries over who started the virus, the spread of the virus. But you would think that those who go through the problem first are most capable of helping. 
countries that come after them, and I don't see that happening. And not it's not necessary to put blame on this. It's just a fact, and why we are, I think, short of what we need to best serve the public. Well, the issues of people, we know what's right, I think. In our hearts, we know what's right to do in the ethical situation. But when people are just totally unethical, yeah. uh, what what kind of sanctions are there or controls do we have out in our society to control unethical behavior? There are laws out there that most states have about price gouging. Uh, so they can invoke those when people are hoarding products, selling it for um, extreme markups. Other than that, it, we are a free country, and we're able to do what we want to do within the confines of the law. So unless there's a law against these sort of things, it's hard to do much about this. We do depend on the goodwill of people. Um, I think this will diminish in time with stories of uh, people and maybe even organizations taking advantage of others, um, just basically because states are declaring emergencies, and that usually gives them extra powers to do things that they would not ordinarily. There are some states where if there's a curfew and you go out after the curfew, you can be cited. So uh, that will probably help at least until we get over this initial rush of uh, coronavirus patients. How, how do you think the American population is responding to this? Uh, are they all over the board? I, I know people, older people in the high-risk groups uh, tend to look at this as deadly serious and they're observing things. But how about the rest of the uh, demographics? Yeah, it is a mixed bag, no question about it. Uh, probably, generally speaking, the younger people are not adhering to the warnings as much as the older folks. But, of course, they're being told that they're not at risk, as high a risk. And clearly everybody's been saying it's the elderly and those with underlying conditions. So we do have a split with respect to personal responsibility. And I think that's uh, not going to get better anytime soon unless states do put into effect these curfews. And, gee, by now some of the places like Florida should have just closed down the beaches rather than keep them open for spring break, folks. But uh, at least up till a few hours ago they weren't doing that or they may cut off access to the beach parking, that sort of thing. But you really have to enforce it. There's no sense having access laws and uh, curfews unless you enforce it. Well, it's such a, uh, again, such a, a nightmarish situation from the standpoint that uh, our law enforcement and our health care providers, our EMTs, um, if they don't have the proper protection equipment and they start mm -hmm. becoming infected, we're going to lose them. They're, they're going to be kept home uh, from work. And as the numbers go down, I guess people uh, can be bad. Uh, so uh, where, where do we go to look for ethical guidance? Well, I think we have to look at our uh, leaders of our communities, those people we respect, their opinions, and follow what they say. And 
Also, there are certain basic ethical principles that we want to get a little bit more theoretical about it. Uh, you know, there is the golden rule to treat others the way you wish to be treated. So people would ask themselves that. How would I want others to treat my spouse, my uh, father, my mother, my grandparents? I want them to be protected, so I'm not going to go and party and then maybe come back to the house and expose them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Compassion for older people that really are uh, most at stake here, that's very important as well. And, you know, just, just good common sense, common sense and common decency, which is uh, part of ethical behavior. Yeah. But I think that well, we have to put ourselves in the position of others. Well, let's, let's, sort, of leave it at, let's sort of leave it at that, the golden rule is what we'll rule here. And uh, think about the other person. Very good. Well, thank you so very much for joining us, uh, Dr. Stephen Mintz from California. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. My pleasure, and thank you for joining us tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station, so between now and then. Have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do 